Um, I, I think it's really important as clinicians to start out by asking the question, does this person have known prior cardiovascular disease or not? Welcome to All Things Cardio-Oncology. My name is Steve Caselli. I'm the Executive Director of ICOS. And in this podcast, you'll hear from a diverse representation from our community. We want you to be both informed and inspired by their stories and experiences, and we're so glad that you've joined us today. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to have uh, my co-hosts with me today, our, Dr. Arjun Ghosh and Dr. Daniel Lanahan. I wonder if each of you could just uh, say hello, introduce yourself, tell us where you are. Arjun? Uh, thanks so much, Steve. I'm a consultant cardiologist at Barts Heart Centre and University College London Hospital, and I run the cardio-oncology service at UCLH. Great. Always good to have you. And Dan? Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, yeah, I'm a founder and board member of ICOS and uh, am a cardio-oncologist at St. Francis Healthcare in Cape Girardeau in Missouri in the United States. Great. Always good to have you as well. And it's a privilege for us today to welcome two guests who have really broad experience and expertise in research in the field of cardio-oncology. So I first want to introduce Dr. Daryl Leong. He's Associate Professor of Medicine and the Director of the McMaster University and Hamilton Health Sciences Cardio-Oncology Program. And he is the chair of the ICOS Research Working Group. So welcome, Daryl. Thanks very much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. And Dr. Tia Hagano, uh, she is associate professor or adjunct professor in the Department of Urologic Sciences at the University of British Columbia. So Tia, welcome. Yes, thank you. Looking forward to our discussion. Well, as always, we uh, we like to have our guests just tell us a little bit about your own uh, professional background and particularly sort of how you ended up in, with an interest in the field of cardio-oncology. So maybe, Tia, you could start. Sure. So um, I'm primarily um, focusing in prostate cancer as a GU medical oncologist. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. So my some of my earlier um, interests in cardio-oncology date back to the old days of anthracyclines when, you know, anthracyclines were some of the only drugs that we had um, to treat various cancers. Um, but over time, um, you know, my, my focus in prostate cancer brought me to trying to understand, you know, whether there were differences um, between LHRH agonists and LHRH antagonists. And to that end, I was part of the pronounced trial, which was um, reported out last year. So I I also sort of think I'm a, I'm an early adopter. <laughs> and uh, this is a this is a really new and growing and exciting field. And so I, I think actually uh, you you might laugh at this, um, Dan, but <laughs> I was talking to Mike Ewer this morning about um, just the whole field because he and I go back on a paper from a long time ago. But um, so, you know, I've had some interesting connections in the field that that are just by coincidence. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, I, uh, as I'm sure you probably discussed, I worked with Mike for eight years at MD Anderson uh, uh, about a decade ago. And uh, 
yeah, he's 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 been uh, pursuing the whole anthracycline piece for quite some time, as I'm sure you know. So yes, I do. That's great. Well, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for giving us your time today. And Daryl, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up with an interest in cardio oncology. Sure, Steve. So um, my background methodologically is really clinical epidemiology and clinical trials. And one of the things we've been observing is that, you know, cardiovascular mortality rates globally are decreasing, uh, which is terrific. And that's really a testament to a lot of the folks that have uh, done research in cardiovascular diseases. But one of the consequences of that is that we noticed that cancer mortality uh, as a proportion of all deaths is actually higher in many settings now than cardiovascular disease. So that's one really good reason to be interested in cancer outcomes. But of course, huge progress has been made by folks like Tia in cancer research as well. And so we're seeing this kind of complex relationship where cancer deaths are also on the decrease for many uh, different cancer sites. And so our patients now are really living with both cardiovascular disease and cancer as chronic diseases. And that's why I think it's really important that we understand how the two interact with each other and the treatments interact, and we develop strategies for helping uh, patients with what is really an evolving field and a, a new way of living with these chronic diseases. SC and ICOS were, were also obviously co-authors in those guidelines on cardio-oncology, and there was quite a large section on uh, prostate, uh, urological cancers, and you know, androgen deprivation therapy and these issues. So maybe if um, I could uh, start with you, Daryl, and then come to you, Tia, as to what you thought about the guidelines and then, you know, specifically focusing on you know, your areas of, of expertise and, you know, what was missing or, or what needed to be added or whether they were fully comprehensive. Uh, Daryl, if I could start for, with you for your thoughts. Yeah, uh, thanks for the question, Arjun. Look, I think there are a tremendous uh, body of work. And, uh, you know, we were talking a little informally before, but as Tia said, uh, a, a terrific resource for healthcare practitioners at various levels. Uh, so a huge amount of work has gone into what is a really sizable document. Um, I think where I have some mixed feelings, I guess, is that there are a large number of recommendations that have been made. And I do think, you know, the context is that this is a relatively new specialty. And perhaps the evidence to support some of these recommendations might not be so strong as we would like to see for them to be solid class one uh, recommendations. Um, you know, we, we see examples of this uh, all the time. For instance, I was a call, on a call with a colleague earlier today uh, proposing a randomized control trial where we felt there was certainly clinical equipoise. We see that, you know, uh, talking to uh, uh, clinicians around the world and patients as well. Uh, but, you know, the, the current guidelines endorse a, a particular course of action, albeit on a total sample size research of N equals 50. And this was a non-randomized study. So to, to have uh, a firm recommendation that clinicians are following on 50 uh, patient experience, to me, is just, you know, it's not robust enough. And so that's where uh, uh, my hesitancy with some of the recommendations would, would lie. Okay, that's that's very interesting. And um, Tia, from from your point of view, from the oncologist point of view, uh, I mean, do you think the guidelines can reach the oncologists, or, or you know, should should they be, you know, what should the oncologist take home from from the guidelines? Yeah, I think. Well, I I echo what Daryl said. I I think that the guideline as a whole is a beautiful compilation of of information. 
Um, I think when you go into, for example, an area that I know well, prostate cancer and androgen deprivation therapy, you know, you might see some of the oncologic holes um, in the guideline. For example, um, if you look at figure 21, um, it, it's really hard, I think, to understand that we don't use a lot of these drugs in the table alone. I mean, we use them in combination with standard um, approaches to androgen deprivation therapy. Um, but you, you could you could be a little misled by that um, by that figure, I think. Um, and and oncologists also have to think of this because you know we're we're kind of, with some of these drugs that are in that table. Just for example, the second generation antiandrogens. Um, you know, there's a you know there's a, a very strong signal for um, hypertension, for example. And in two of the three drugs, and we need to understand that, you know, there are differences. They're all three second generation antiandrogens. And in fact, from the cancer standpoint, they have similar efficacies. Although I, I'm just, I'm throwing that out from large phase three trials. They haven't been studied head to head as far as efficacy. Um, but, you know, the, the uh, toxicity is on top of standard ADT when you add these drugs. So that's that's one thing. I think another thing that um, I, I think is important, and I, I I think this came out in the guideline. I, I don't know. I did so much reading in the last twenty four hours. <laughs> I'd be confused, but um, I I think it's really important as clinicians to start out by asking the question: Does this person have known prior cardiovascular disease or not? Like Daryl said you know, not all of these recommendations are actually probably most of the recommendations aren't based on, you know, level one evidence. And we have to take into account the risk benefit. I mean, sure, sure a drug could have some cardiotoxicity, but, you know, I've had patients actually say, oh, they don't want to have ADT because of potential cardiotoxicity. And you're there. Oh, no, 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 no. This is, you know, it, <laughs> it it's so, you know, Yes, there's something there, but no, that's not something you should not take because sure. of that small. So it's, you know, I think yeah. that is something in the guideline that I think they try to address that, but I, yeah. I think it's challenging. Sure. I mean, maybe if I could just ask um, an, another question on the guideline before handing over to Dan, but uh, if I could just bring your attention to recommendation table 16 and uh, for the uh, the listeners uh, not not everyone is maybe has memorized every table and every number, but maybe if I could just uh, explain. So this is the recommendations for baseline risk assessment and monitoring during androgen deprivation therapy for prostate cancer. And T, as you mentioned, they do talk about the baseline cardiovascular risk assessment and using an established you know, risk score and ECGs and looking for QT prolongation. So I, I just wanted from you know, your point of view as an oncologist, do, do you think this is reasonable, doable, and who, who's going to actually implement this and who's going to follow these patients up, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is a really um, important question, and I mean, one of one of the things in that table includes use of a screening device called Score Two or Score Two, uh, OP. And I mean, I, from what I can see, that those are European um, screening questions. So, yeah. 
I'm not really sure how that will apply to North American patients, but um, you know, the, I don't think I don't think that kind of um, screening is real. I mean, I think it's just as easy for a clinician to determine from a history from a patient whether or not they've had prior cardiovascular disease. I don't know if sure. they have to go through all the rest of that. Okay. But and, I, I, it's pretty inclusive. I mean, you know, it, 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 there's nothing, I don't think there's anything left to the imagination there. Right. And Daryl, from, from the cardiologist's point of view, what would you say about table 16? And, you know, who, how, how easy would it be for, you know, would it be the oncologist or the primary care provider? Because as Tia mentioned, you know, no matter what score you use, you could use a framing and risk score or in the UK, you can use a JBS score, but it, it, it is work and, and it's not necessarily intuitive to a non-cardiologist. Yeah, this is a real big issue because while in principle, you know, we'd certainly agree that everybody uh, probably of this kind of age should have their cardiovascular risk uh, uh, looked into. Uh, I think many urologists, uro-oncologists may struggle for the time, capacity to do this in busy settings. They may suffer from lack of familiarity. I, I've received feedback about, you know, uh, I don't know what to do about cholesterol levels. And I actually know urologists who don't have a blood pressure cuff in their office because it's not part of their their core business and their core, uh, you know, uh, what they deliver to patients. Um, equally, when you talk about family physicians, um, you know, we have data in a paper coming out in Jack Cardio Oncology soon to show that about 75% of men with prostate cancer in a large cohort, so nearly 3,000 people, uh, their blood pressure does not uh, achieve uh, what the guidelines suggest is target. And 50% don't have cholesterol levels, LDL levels that are at target according to guidelines, suggesting that at a primary care level, there's a big gap there as well. Can cardiologists fill that role? Look, I'd like to think so, but there's a heck of a lot of patients out there, and it may be difficult for many cardiologists to accommodate these uh, these patients, you know, on top of their busy practices. So I think we need to start to think about some innovative strategies uh, to deliver the care and the risk stratification that these patients need. Great, thank you. I think very sorry. Oh, I was just, I was just gonna. I just wanted to add to that about the primary care physicians. I also think that from their standpoint, they develop a reluctance to be that involved with a cancer patient once they're seeing an oncologist because, you know, they figure they're already seeing another doctor, yeah. you know, the blood pressure, whatever, isn't as important as the fact they have this cancer that needs to be treated. And so they kind of hand over everything to the oncologist common, yeah. not always. Yeah. And I, th I think that's, that's a very, very common, common point and a very important point as well. So a lot of communication, I think for between cardiologists, oncologists and primary care is, is a common theme always in, in our cardio-oncology discussions, I think. Uh, well, thank you for your perspectives uh, from the oncology and cardiology point of view on the recent guidelines. I'll maybe hand over to Dr. Lenihan for, for his uh, questions and thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Arjun. The, uh, yeah, Tia, you said a couple of things that uh, are kind of like my favorite topics to jump to jump on. And, and what it really is, is that you know, your perspective of, you know, a table that outlines all of these cardiovascular manifestations of some prostate cancer drugs, you know, and then you look at the table and you see there's all these big circles and smaller circles. And <laughs> in the end, you know, it's pretty common that somebody may have 
hypertension or some establishment of coronary artery disease during the course of cancer treatment, just in general. So, so I mean, the, the fact that there's a, a high rate of those adverse events is not trying to at least not so much, it doesn't come through in the guidelines, but certainly in our conversations or in our interactions with other providers, you know, it's not about whether or not these drugs have adverse events because every single drug has tons of adverse events if you really tabulate them all. Mm -hmm. But it's more, okay, these are the issues that we need to get ahead of. And we want the patient to get the best cancer therapy. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean no therapy. It means you pick the best therapy, whatever you think it is, and we need to do a better job about managing the hypertension or hyperlipidemia or, or complications of cardiovascular disease that may occur. We, you know, we need to get on top of that. And, you know, as you mentioned uh, offline about uh, Dr. Ewer, you know, one of our first major conversations as time was going on was about, you know, people would get Herceptin and they would show some change in LV function, and then automatically the patient was taken off her septum forever. And, you know, what a tragedy that is, especially because, you know, the drug is so important from a cancer point of view. And as it turned out, definitely we felt like we could manage those problems. So in the end, now people give her septum and you know, some people might even argue they don't even monitor for cardiotoxicity much anymore because it's so safe because, you know, we're sort of paying attention. Yeah. But I think that's the concept. It's not to say that a drug is bad, but rather to to say, okay, these are the issues. We need to manage them. And, uh, you know, so if if the guidelines seem like they're saying, oh, there's all these cardiovascular problems, that's not that's not really the main intent. The main intent is to say, okay, as cardiologists, we need to do a better job dealing with these problems so that people get their best cancer therapy as long as it's you know still still working. So I think that's a that's a real strong message that we need to make sure gets out there about, you know, not only these guidelines, but just what we do in general. So yeah. I, I think that uh, we we really want to hear from the oncology side to make sure that we're, we're delivering the right message. Yeah, I well, I think that, you know, medical oncologists in general, maybe I mean, sort of like cardiologists in general, haven't necessarily been focused on the other side. And I think that, um, you know, with all these new drugs we have now, with a variety of these toxicities, like all drugs have, but I mean, and and now that patients are living longer, it, it, does, it makes a big difference how we think about um, the cardiac issues, especially since that could be the number one cause of death that's non-cancer related, at least in prostate cancer. So, um, I, you know, I, I think, I just think we have to have a measured perspective when it comes to 
um, guidelines like this. I think we still have to be clinicians and um, perhaps, you know, you were saying, well, do you need to monitor, you know, after Herceptin, you know, or can you just figure out based on physical exam and history, does the person have any sign of heart failure? <laughs> I mean, do we really need to get a teeny weeny difference on a MUGA scan or something? You know, so I, I, I would, I, I hope that the field of cardio oncology doesn't swing so far in the procedural, you know, aspects that will raise concern from the oncologists and cause people not to use drugs that are really important for longevity. Yeah, I did. I sincerely hope not. And I can assure you that uh, I will uh, not allow that to happen without a fight. So oh, good. But uh, <laughs> Daryl, I don't know, you know, Tia mentioned about the pronounced trial, and I'm pretty sure you were involved in that too. And, you know, you can look at the pronounced trial in, there's at least two major ways that you can look at it. And I think I've sort of chosen one way, but, you know, the, the sort of party line uh, observation of the pronounced trial was that, uh, you know, that there wasn't a demonstrable, a demonstrable difference between agonists and antagonists in terms of treatment of prostate cancer, at least as it relates to cardiovascular events. So that's sort of the summary statement. Do you, do you agree with that? Not entirely, Dan. And, and the reason is that, you know, the trial, because of a number of circumstances, just was underpowered. So that neutrality in the, in the top-line result comes because there were 25 outcome events uh, at the end of the study, I think, in total. And, you know, um, I've had folks say to me, well, you know, it was a neutral study, but uh, I put it to the, uh, put it this way. If there had been two outcome events, you know, one in each arm, uh, because it was a very short, brief trial, uh, would that be enough to say that there was neutrality and there's clear evidence that one drug is the same as the other for cardiovascular events? And, you know, I think most people would say, no, the answer is no, we just don't have enough. So the question then is, well, where do you draw the line? Is it four outcome events? Is it six? Is it 25? Well, that's where the powering of the study comes in and the upfront statistical calculations. And that would suggest that we need quite a number more uh, outcome events to be able to show if one drug is better than another. Now, there have been arguments that, look, you would need a very large trial, perhaps a prohibitively large trial to be able to demonstrate a small benefit of antagonists over agonists. And sure, there are practical considerations like that and feasibility considerations. But at the end of the day, you know, the science, in my mind, has got to try to come first and got to try to win with the science. And if there's any way we can demonstrate with a large enough and robust enough study that antagonists are better or not than the agonists for cardiovascular events, that would be a huge breakthrough, not just for prostate cancer, but for, for cardiology, because it changes the way in which we think about, you know, cardiovascular disease as well. It's a new paradigm. Yeah, and 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 Tia, I I don't wasn't trying to cut you off there, but the uh, uh, there is another view, or at least uh, I certainly have another view of the pronounced study. When you look at the uh, therapy that was given for those patients from a cardiovascular point of view, it was very high in terms of statin use and also antiplatelet therapy 
very high. It was I think it was over 85%, maybe even over 90%. So these are all patients that were seen by cardiology and managed their cardiovascular issues because they all had established coronary disease. Correct. So that is one of the reasons that why I would say there was a very low rate of events yes, because cardiologists were involved and they did their part of the right. story. And, and that's exactly, that's exactly, um, I, I actually brought this up early in the discussions of trying to understand the results. Um, but, but in conjunction with that, the other thing to realize is if, if you recall that the trial was powered off of numbers from the Albertson study that, you know, put together six phase three trials and looked at outcomes in agonist versus agonist. I mean, those, those patients were clearly 10 or more years behind in where we were with therapies for underlying cardiovascular disease. And so you know, in retrospect, it was a big mistake to use that to power a study that was now, you know, 15 years after those patients had been treated, because the 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 um, advances in cardiovascular med- medicine. Um, sorry about the dog. Um, the, the advances, you know, ha- have made a big impact. I think on on cardiovascular outcomes. Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's not only that, but the fact that the patients were on those medicines, you know, that uh, they didn't have, they weren't, uh, you know, new diagnosis of prostate cancer that hadn't had any assessment of their cardiovascular risk factors. They, they were, they were well characterized patients that were on optimal medical therapy right. for, for their, for their heart disease. Part of the, um, requirements on the trial for, you know, all these men coming into the trial with known cardiovascular disease, the requirement was that they had to be under the care of a cardiologist who was going to be participating, um, you know, with the care of this patient during the trial, because there was some concern. I mean, one of the reasons that was done is there was some concern that maybe this could be this could be accused of being an unethical trial because, you know, we supposedly already knew that antagonists were safer for these men than agonists. So everybody wanted to make sure that the patients had optimal, um, you know, cardiac care. Yeah. I think that that really probably drove down the rates (laughs) of of adverse events. And so, so, you know, to Daryl's point that, you would have had to do some huge study to to show a difference. If there was, a, if there is a difference, uh, it would have taken a lot more patients because their risk factors were well managed. And you know, that's honestly, that's just not reality. I mean, of the people that I see no. right now that have prostate cancer, uh, most of them have been treated for a while or they already had their surgery or their radiation or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're way down the line and they haven't even had a lipid panel or their blood pressure wasn't measured. You know, I mean, it just, it wasn't part of the picture. Well, and that's where I think, you know, um, just even having guidelines about cardio oncology now, 
um, is important just to, as a reminder, like we have to think of these things just because a patient had cancer doesn't mean we don't pay attention to their cardiovascular risk factor and, and take care of them. I mean, if they're not, if they have hyperlipidemia and they're not on a statin, there's something wrong. Yeah. I mean, at least in the United States, for sure. Yeah. If, you in, if you get into your seventies and, uh, you know, you don't, you, yeah, if you're not on a, <laughs> a, a statin and aspirin and all that, then, uh, you know, you're partly a unicorn, but the, the Daryl, so where, where do you think, you know, we need to go from here, you know, with the pronounced study. And I know you're, you're working on, uh, some pretty big studies. So can you tell us about those things? Yeah, so I think the question, this antagonist versus agonist question remains to be answered. There is some work in the pipelines and, and we'll see, you know, what comes of it, but it'll be a challenging uh, piece of research to do. I hope we get the answers in a few years, but uh, uh, we'll see. Um, you know, as you alluded to, I, I think that we need to pay attention to cardiovascular risk irrespective. But the question is, how are we going to do that? Um, and so a couple of big studies that we're involved with, so uh, Antia is collaborating with us on, on one of these called Radical PC2. We're actually doing a pragmatic trial to see whether a routine referral of folks with prostate cancer to see a cardiologist is something that's worth doing. Uh, so pragmatic uh, in that sense. Uh, and uh, basically, we've randomized over 1,700 men with prostate cancer to either see a cardiologist or uh, have their usual physician's care uh, only with or without a cardiologist as needed. Um, and so we hope to recruit uh, certainly well over 2,000 people into this trial. It's an international trial, and we expect the results will be available in about 2025. Um, is it practical for cardiologists to see all men with prostate cancer? Like I said earlier on, I'm not sure that it is, certainly not in my practice. I don't think I could actually physically do that. And so we're thinking about innovative ways of approaching the problem. One strategy we're developing is uh, in uh, collaboration with the University of Pennsylvania, where we're developing an app that uh, the, uh, uh, the patient themselves uh, or their families or their healthcare providers could register them for. They can enter some simple cardiovascular parameters, uh, risk parameters, uh, and this could be done online on existing tools, but the real uh, benefit of this particular tool is it will uh, incorporate some information about their prostate cancer, firstly, and secondly, we want to give them some tailored feedback so that they're not confronted by the whole uh, worldwide web of information about what they could do. They're given some information that is relevant to their uh, cardiovascular risk factors uh, and their level of risk. Uh, and uh, hopefully that can be a complementary way to try and uh, uh, provide education and provide uh, a better cardiovascular care for these patients. If you or your institution would like to have credentials that confirm your qualifications as a cardio-oncologist or a cardio-oncology center of excellence, we encourage you to consider applying for our certification exam in cardio-oncology or our certification for centers of excellence. These are the only certifications currently available in this field, and it's a special opportunity for you or your institution to distinguish yourself, recognizing your expertise in the field. More information about both these opportunities can be found at ic-os.org, or you can email directoricos at gmail.com for more information. And Arjun, what what do you think? I mean, what is your experience with, you know, 
patients with prostate cancer. I mean, are you only contacted when when there's a serious cardiac issue, or, or where does where does your practice end up? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's pretty similar, and we've had a lot of local discussions as to what is the role of the oncologist in terms of screening, what is the role of the primary care physician, and what is the role of the cardiologist. And I think as you know, Daryl alluded to, it probably isn't practical for the cardiologist to be seeing all of these patients. And what does need to happen is better screening. And in, in the UK, um, the primary care physician is entrusted with carrying out this screening depending upon age. So similar to, to what you said, uh, uh, Dan, a lot of these patients at their age, uh, male, elderly, do have risk factors and actually are on some form of therapy. Um, and that can sometimes you know, start before the prostate cancer treatment. And that's obviously great. But there are still some patients, you know, who don't have screening, and um, they probably, you know, as a as a community of uh, of doctors as a whole, we're probably doing them a disservice by by not doing that. But but it does remain a challenge, and I think that um, I do kind of come back to the point that Tia raised that I don't know how practical it is to expect an oncologist to go through detailed cardiovascular screening when they need to consent the patient for their oncology treatment. And the patient quite rightly has a number of questions much more related to you know, their oncology, their disease and their prognosis and their treatment. So really maybe you know, a, a more um, refined screening of you know, just the history. Do they have cardiovascular risk factors and just managing them is a good place to start. And if we can get that message out to the community, I think that's that's really a good thing. You know, I yes. think I was, I'm sorry, Dan. I was just no. going to throw in a quick, um, quick fact we haven't really talked about. But um, another thing as a clinician, I mean, we, th- we think about cardiovascular disease, um, hopefully. But the other thing, at least when it comes to prostate cancer and hormone therapy, I also am trying to understand their metabolic status. I mean, do, you know, do they have diabetes? And like, when if I'm going to start ADT, um, am I going to cause havoc with that? Because sometimes I will, j- just like with a car, may, may having things optimized with the cardiologist, I'll want uh, whoever's taking care of their diabetes, whether it's a primary care or endocrinologist, to see that person beforehand and say, hey, you know, th- th- this guy is going to be at risk for his diabetes going cuckoo. And then, because that doesn't really help the cardiovascular either. So that was just my point on that. Yeah, so I think, you know, one thing, and, I, and I've talked to Daryl about this before, so uh, maybe I'll put him on the spot and see what his opinion is. But the you know, the PROSPER study that was published a year or two ago, you know, major study looking at, uh, I think, I don't remember the drugs, but one of them was enzalutamide, I believe. And uh, uh, in any case, it was enzalutamide plus ADT versus just ADT by itself. And when they did a, you know, big study, and this was, you know, complex prostate cancer that had already gotten past you know, initial diagnosis. And they, uh, they found that the people that were on enzalutamide had a uh, improvement in overall survival. Um, That was, you know, pretty significant at, I think it was at about five years. I'm not sure if it was the right time interval. But nonetheless, when you looked at the adverse events, the group that 
uh, were treated with enzalutamide had much higher adverse cardiovascular adverse events. And if you added them all up, it was uh, twice as common that they would have cardiovascular adverse events. Now they didn't die from them, but they had them. And, you know, I think in those situations, if cardiologists or, or certainly uh, internists or primary care doctors that were in tune with management of cardiovascular disease, that, you know, you could really make a big difference in those treatment arms if you prevented or minimized those cardiovascular adverse events. So, Daryl, what do you think about that? Yeah, and we, you know, Dan, uh, we're going to only see more of these uh, patients on these drugs because the field is, and Tia obviously could speak to this with much more expertise than me. But increasingly, these drugs, uh, the uh, the ARATs, are being tested, evaluated in patients with you know earlier and earlier stages of disease. So, I anticipate that we're going to see a lot of these patients. And as as you also said uh, correctly before, Tia, you know, the uh, adverse metabolic effects of the ARATs. Uh, on top of any adverse metabolic effects of the agonists or antagonists, so the uh, so-called ADT, if you uh, if you like, uh, and so um, I think we need to pay close attention clearly to these uh, cardiometabolic effects, uh, and really I think that's where we can make a difference to enable patients to stay on these drugs safely for as long as they need to. So Tia, what what are, what things are you excited about in in the world of prostate cancer and, and clinical research? What, what kind of things do you see coming down the pipeline? Well, I think, um, so if you're just talking prostate cancer, not necessarily, um, you know, cardio-oncology, but I mean, I, I think um, I'm very excited about the immunotherapies. And actually, that's something in the guideline um, that we, di- we didn't have a chance to touch on. But, you know, as in many other kinds of cancer, you know, immunotherapy is becoming very, a very important component for many patients, but yet these immunotherapy drugs also have their own toxicities. Um, And I was, I was interested to see about the myocarditis um, section of the guideline, because I actually had a patient die from that. At least I, I'm 100% convinced that's what it was, even though it was quite late. Um, but then I yeah. saw those papers were only recently published showing how late it could actually come on. But I had a lot of pushback from uh, the company about whether or not it was a really, um, you know, it, you know, drug-related myocarditis. Yeah, so this is like the favorite topic of all for, for ICOs. <laughs> so. I mean, (laughs) you can't talk about uh, cardio-oncology without bringing up a concept of immune checkpoint inhibitors. So so I think that uh, this is a huge area. Obviously, it's it's a super important area for cancer. And, you know, so many kinds of cancer are being treated with these drugs. And then, of course, there are potentially serious cardiovascular issues, but, you know, we're we're trying our best to to raise awareness, but also to figure out ways to to minimize that. So, you know, Daryl, I mean, what would you say about that? I know you're you're quite familiar with with that space. Yeah, look, I think it's all uh, that's hugely important uh, as a, as a drug class and as a class of adverse effects. And I think the bigger picture and what's really 
exciting for me is that you know we're learning to do research and to treat patients with multimorbidity, with complex disease, and with physical frailty. And that's really a testament to the fact that folks are living long enough and living with diseases long enough that this can be a thing. You know, I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, this wasn't so much of a thing. And most of the trials we have to guide management were really based on single disease populations, so-called clean populations. And we're just not seeing that anymore. So I think our research has to move accordingly to help us understand uh, what the best advice is uh, when you're confronted by a patient with you know, multiple morbidities, uh, contemplating uh, uh, either invasive ca- uh, cardiovascular treatments or new cancer treatments, is it really in their best interest? Um, uh, what is the toxicities of their other treatments? How is it going to interact? All these are really big questions. Uh, and, and tied into that is physical frailty, which I think is really important. So I think that's where uh, you know, we have got you know, an interest in doing research. And I think where the field's got to move to. Well, Daryl and Tia, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with us, but more importantly, your expertise. I know it's it's a great help to our community, and we really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you all. Really great discussion. For more information about ICOS, you can go to ic-os.org, where you'll find more information about all of our programs, including our weekly webinars our board certification exam, and other resources that we know you'll find helpful. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to hear from you soon.